Um, it's my pleasure to welcome you to Falvey Memorial Library. Uh, I'm Joe Lucia, the director here, and this is actually our third, although uh, the second annual in, uh, technically, uh, in the Alfred and Rose T. Loria Manella uh, lecture series. Uh, we have a, a, ver a very generous uh, patron who is also a Villanova alum, um, he's here with us tonight, Al Manella, who has um, helped make this event possible um, through a, a generous gift to the library, and we are greatly appreciative of that. Uh, I am not going to spend too much time talking. I'm just going to turn this over to Professor Richard Giuliani um, from our sociology department, who um, actually gave our inaugural lecture in this series. He has done uh, significant scholarly work on the Italian-American experience here specifically in Philadelphia and uh, is going to talk a little bit about um, this lecture series and our speaker tonight. So, Dr. Giuliani. Good evening and welcome to the third lecture in the annual Manella lecture series, co-sponsored by Falfi Library and now co-sponsored also by the America Italy Society of Philadelphia and by the Italian General Consulate of Philadelphia. Uh, something we can be very happy and pleased to, to have connected with. Uh, I've listened to many people make introductions at events like this and I can't bear long introductions where the person making the introduction seems to think that all these people came out to hear him when they haven't come out to hear him but they came out to hear uh, a speaker who uh, whom he will introduce. So I'll make my remarks very short. Uh, I too will thank Mr. Al Manella for initiating and continuing his very generous financial support of the Alfred F. Manella and Rose T. Lari Manella Distinguished Speaker Series. We wouldn't have this series without uh, our friend Al Manella's wonderful generosity. Uh, it is uh, my privilege tonight to introduce our guest speaker, Professor Nicholas Petruno, Emeritus Professor of Italian at Bryn Mawr College, a distinguished scholar, and I'm even happier to say my very good friend. Uh, forgive me if I uh, become familiar, and rather than refer to him as Professor Petruno, I say Nick, uh, because uh, that's how I know him. But uh, Professor Petruno received his PhD from Rutgers University in 1973. After teaching a couple of years at Holy Cross College, he came to Bryn Mawr College a long time ago, where he has remained for nearly 40 years, attaining the rank of full professor uh, and having retired, and is now emeritus professor, having retired in 2007 or so. Uh, a man who is a prolific scholar with important, very important contributions to Italian studies, particularly uh, interested in the Holocaust in Italy. Uh, and I was, uh, as I was looking at his uh, curriculum vitae uh, the last couple of days, I was intrigued to see he also has had a particular focus on women in the Holocaust, which is sometimes a neglected uh, issue, a neglected topic. Uh, his work, I think, culminated in the publication of the book entitled Understanding Primo Levi, published by University of South Carolina Press in 1995. Uh, that's enough of my introduction of Nick, okay? I'm gonna turn it over to him in just a moment. I wish I could say something more about Primo Levi. I would like to say something myself about Primo Levi, but since that's why we asked Nick Bertuno to come, I'm going to, I think it would be better if I leave it all up to him. Except one small remark, one small observation. Uh, Levy to me was uh, unfortunately somewhat remote name, somebody that, that long ago marked in the back of my mind that I should be reading. And then uh, a few years ago, I heard a very distinguished historian from the University of Texas, himself an Italian Jew, Professor Claudio, the late Professor Claudio Segre, at a conference here in Philadelphia, say, in concluding his own observations on the significance of Primo Levi, 
say that uh, for those of you in the audience who have never read Primo Levi, I envy you because you have a real treat waiting out there for you. And I thought to myself, wow, I don't know how to make a better comment to invite people to pick up an author uh, and begin reading Levy. So with that, I am happy to turn over the program to Professor Petruno. Welcome, Professor Petruno. Um, Rich, Professor Giuliani, uh, I'm very, uh, you've been very kind, and um, I brought my glasses, otherwise. And before I do start with my uh, talk, I, I am, of course, honored and, uh, and privileged to have been invited to talk on uh, Primo Levi as part of the Alfred Manella and Rose Lauria Manella Distinguished Speakers Series. And also, I'm very grateful to Villanova for the kind hospitality, and to Ann Ford in particular for the lovely posters advertising this lecture. Um, <clears throat> Born in uh, Turin, one of Italy's most industrialized cities, on July 31, 1919, Primo Levi the son of a successful electrical engineer, grew up during the years before World War II in the relative comfort of the middle class, at a time when being Jewish had not yet become a reason of segregation and then persecution. In 1937, Levy enrolled at the University of Turin to major in chemistry. Luckily, Am I doing this? Or? No, it's, it's hidden behind the screen. Oh, OK. Uh, luckily for me, uh, because he had enrolled one year prior to the promulgation of the fascist racial laws, which, along with other restrictions, prohibited Jews from attending public schools, he was allowed to complete his studies. He graduated summa cum laude in 1941. However, his diploma carried the phrase di razza ebraica, of the Jewish race. This was the first act of open discrimination he personally experienced. Late in 1943, when following the fall of the fascist government, the Germans created near Lake Garda in northern Italy a puppet government known as the Republic of Salò, where at its head Benito Mussolini, whom they had rescued from prison, the country found itself divided and plagued by a civil war. With the fascists and the German army in control of much of central and all of northern Italy. It was at this time that the deportation of Jews began. Primo Levi was one of close to 6,400 Italian Jews to be deported, mainly to the camps of Auschwitz, Birkenau, and Mauthausen. Of the 650 prisoners who were taken to Auschwitz with Levy, only 15 men and eight women returned home. Levy's imprisonment in Auschwitz in February of 1944, which resulted from a betrayal of his partisan activities in the Aosta region north of Turin, made him a witness to one of humanity's darkest moments. Not able to foresee the tragic consequences of his own decision, Upon capture, Levy chose to admit that he was a Jew, rather than to own up to his partisan involvement. This confession, he will tell in one of his books, was made in part because he was tired and worn down em emotionally, partly because he was led to believe this would carry a less harsh punishment, but to a greater extent because of an unexpected, of an unexpected sudden surge of pride in his origins. As Haftling or prisoner number 174517 in Auschwitz, Levy's life was prescribed 
by the most irrational actions of others. But, as fate would have it, his training as a chemist, which enabled him later on to be assigned less demanding work in a laboratory at Auschwitz, coupled with his being ill with scarlet fever in the infirmary when the Russians liberated Auschwitz in January of 1945, allowed him to be out of the death camp mainstream at a most opportune time. Because of his, because of his illness, which ironically may have saved his life, he was left behind by the fleeing Germans, convinced as they were that those who were ill in the camp would have perished before anyone could reach them. Although he believed that anyone who survived this horrendous experience, including his home, was essentially the result of many diverse and unwittingly lucky circumstances, to use Levy's own phrase in an interview he had with Philip Roth, Levy quickly learned that in Auschwitz, to communicate increased one's slight chances to survive. And as a man of science, whose inclination it was to observe with patience and to understand, he was able to absorb and then to communicate the Holocaust as a didactic as well as a personally experienced event. On the personal level, Levy's ongoing, compelling need to address the effect and consequences of the death camps, an intense need which he often likened to that of Coleridge's ancient mariner, who could not repress the urge to tell his ghastly tale to whomever and wherever, and whose four lines of that he loved were at an uncertain hour that agony returns, and until my ghastly tale is told, the heart within me burns. As I was saying, <coughs> was this, his desire was fueled in great part by an inner desire to prove the Nazis wrong on their claim that no one in the death camp would live to tell, and that even if someone did survive to tell, no one on the outside would believe the magnitude of the atrocities. His voice would have proved that at least one Jew had lived to tell. The more demanding task Levy saw before himself was how to best articulate to the outside world what had taken place. In Turin, Levy had been raised intellectually in an Enlightenment-derived environment shaped by what he calls, calls, and I quote here, civilized Cartesian phantoms. That is an environment in which, as he explains, dreams and aspirations emerge from and are nurtured by reason and logic. His need to understand, therefore, was integral to his very being. His classically concise, sober, lean style is reflective of a mind that insists on being guided by reason and civility. His dispassionate approach, the accuracy of his observations, honed by his scientific training as chemist and conditioned by the schooling in all the traditional literary sources considered to be fundamental to an education in the humanities and the sciences, refrain from emotions while leaving emotional responses to his readers. He does so because he is wise, not because he is lacking profound passion, pain, and frustration. By taking this position, in addition to respecting the solemnity of the mission he was undertaking, he dignifies himself and the reader by allowing the facts to speak for themselves, so that each person may therefore experience and interpret them within one's own emotional framework. His stone is neither swayed nor subverted by hatred, nor by revenge. Neither does he attempt to elicit this from his readers. To express himself in a rational, clear, temperate manner also signified for Levy a moral victory over Auschwitz. The composure of his voice proved that besides surviving, he had not succumbed to the Nazis' plan of humiliation and dehumanization. The title itself of his first book, in Italian, Sequesto e un uomo, and then translated into English as, as If This Is a Man, and later on in America, with the less, I would think, fortunate title of survival in Auschwitz. Hence, at this attainment. In the book's epigraphic poem, inspired by the Shema, 
which is the liturgical prayer defined by Herman Wilke as the creed of the Jew, the author, besides asking whether any human has the right to treat any man or woman the way he and others have been treated in Auschwitz, also asks the readers to judge for themselves whether he, Primo Levi, despite all that he has been put through, has come out of that horrendous experience still a man. That is, with his moral integrity substantially unscathed, and with this action, still having a clear sense of right and wrong. He definitely confirms this himself in the chapter Chromium in one of his later books, the, pre the, the Periodic Table, where in one of his rare moments of euphoria, he boasts, and I quote, I was ready to challenge everything and everyone in the same way that I had challenged and defeated Auschwitz and loneliness, end of quote. A major way this challenge has manifested itself is evidenced by his extensive literary output. He will continue to defy the Nazi machinery's intention of being silenced by becoming one of the most prolific and important writers of post-World War II Italy. Besides his seminal works on the Holocaust, which include, in the addition to your already mentioned survival in Auschwitz, the reawakening and the drowned in the saint, he has written ably and absorb absorbingly about other subjects and in a number of different genres. In addition to being a, memoir a memoirist, he was a columnist, novelist, writer of short stories and fantasy tales, many of which touch on science fiction, a literary critic, poet, essayist, playwright, and also tried his hand at translation. He translated Kafka's into Italian, Kafka's The Trial into Italian. As I have already mentioned, among the many things that he learned at Auschwitz about human behavior, and this is the reason why he called Auschwitz his true university, communication was vital. In the chapter communicating in his book, The Drowned and the Saved, Levy observed that on the immediate and practical level, within the confines of the lager, the ability to speak German increased one's small chances of survival. In both, if this is a man or survivor Auschwitz, and in The Drowned and the Saved, he will recall how many prisoners, especially among his fellow Italians, were immediately put to death simply because, unable to understand, they failed to follow orders. On the more profound level, the ability to communicate, to relate by way of the clear and uncensored word, was the means by which the Nazis' master plan for the complete annihilation of the Jews, also referred to as the final solution, could have failed, even if just one of those voices succeeded in emerging from that hellish experience to recount it. Levy was impelled by inner experience to become that voice and to emphasize the importance of communication as a counteraction. The Lager experience had also unveiled to him the risk that arises when the written word is bent, distorted, obfuscated, and abused through manipulation to become the official voice of a sinister political force. As such, it implanted in a boastful and vulgar fashion its false ideals and evil principles to achieve a corrupt and immoral end. Equally at fault were those voices of opposition which, even though they witnessed what was wrong, lacked the courage to accuse openly and with a clear voice because, as they would claim, it would have been difficult and useless to communicate with the wicked and the depraved. In an essay, in the essay, An Obscure Writing, in one of Levy's minor, minor books, Levy denounces writers who obscure their messages for the expressed purpose of not wanting to be understood, as in the case of Ezra Pound. Nor does he have much use for those who favor shouting and inarticulateness to the rational, clear and succinct voice. And he states, and I quote, writing serves to communicate, to transmit information or sentiments from mind to mind, and from a place to another place, from a time to another time. And he, 
who is not understood by anyone, does not transmit anything. He cries in the desert. When this happens, the well-intentioned reader must be reassured. If he or she does not understand the text, it is the author's fault, not his or hers. It is up to the writer to make himself understood by those who wish to understand him. It is his trade. Writing is a public service, and the willing reader must not be disappointed." End of quote. With this burden of responsibility he places on the writer, and with his, with his insistence on nothing short of clear, direct, uncomplicated prose, Levy acknowledges that his position places him out of step with the times, or as he would write, at the margins of the group or far from aggregations. While other and louder voices were proclaiming the autonomy of literature, Levy was urging the social commitment of the writer and his or her unequivocal responsibility to the reader. Levy's longer experience had opened his eyes to a reality behind the comprehension of most. And this made him view literature as something much more profound and intellectual than an intellectual exercise with which to experiment. Born out of the need to tell, to him literature, just as important and in harmony with science, will serve as vehicle through which to keep alive an awareness and a warning. To him, humanity is walking a thin line, and it is essential to stay balanced because, as Auschwitz has shown, the loss of that balance can lead to catastrophic consequences. While Levy's incarceration at Auschwitz and his liberation served as his as the initial motivating factor that impelled him to write, his literary gift was also sparked by a sense of responsibility. Fifteen minutes left. And by a sense of responsibility to be a witness for those who had perished and no longer, of course, could speak themselves. And by his recognition of that lingering guilt of survival, he devoted the remainder of his life to fulfilling this self-appointed obligation. As he admitted in an interview to Gail Soffen, and I quote, to tell the story, to bear witness, was an end for which to save oneself. Not to live and to tell, but to live in order to tell, end of quote. This responsibility, however, may have started to take its toll on its re-entry into the normal life. With time, it appears that the lingering guilt of survival, along with other circumstances over which he had no control, but that affected him deeply, begin to take a toll on Levy's thinking, on the clarity of his vision, and on the effectiveness of his mission. Qualms arise where there once had been reason. And having survived, Levy knew he could never fathom the final reality of those who did not. Nor, as he explored at length in this book, The Drowning Say, does he ever come to terms with whatever compromises he or any other wittingly or unwittingly made in order to survive. He may have also been troubled with those, himself included, who, to oppose the enormity of the crime, failed to take action while there was time to do so on the outside. These distressing doubts led him to write in the essay, Shame, that, and I quote, the worst survived. That is, those who were not, who were most suited. The best all died, end of quote. With this statement, Levy seems to be passing sentence on himself as well. This admission must have pained him immensely because it called into question his self-appointed mission of writing on behalf of those who could not. Who or what? gave him the right to speak for them. This awareness, combined with other disturbing events and realizations, led Levy to question whether reason could have provided the answers he sought 
and adequately satisfy its need to tell. Levy died on April 11, 1987, one year after the publication of The Drowned in the Saved, the work which, at a distance of 40 years, brought him back to revisit Auschwitz by way of a dispassionate and a penetrating analysis. That this book was the last published major work to appear before his death, some have claimed, is nothing more than a coincidence. Coincidence as it might have been, there are other pieces of evidence that come out of interviews and other minor works that give cause for speculation about Levy's mental inclination. In a short book called Dialogue on the English Conversations, which is a dialogue between Levy and the physicist Tullio Regge, this book provides some revealing information on Levy's state of mind in relation to his writing. He confesses, with some obvious self-directed disappointment, that he feels he has exhausted his creative reservoirs and that perhaps the time had come for him to channel his interests in other directions. During that same period, while writing The Drowned and the Saved, he had also discovered the computer, easily persuading himself of its convenience in facilitating the mechanics of his writing. Now, he admits that once one has learned how to use the word processor, to live without one would be tantamount to separating oneself from society and to insist on living on its fringes. His claim that to use it, the computer, it is and, I, and I'm quoting here, it is necessary to repress the humanistic desire to understand what's in it, seems so out of character for Levy, for the Levy we know. As pedestrian and superficial this observation on the computer might appear, the phrase repress the humanistic desire is a perplexing one. Levy, who both as a scientist and as a writer, placed the need to rationally understand above all else, now seems to have altered his views. With no intent to overplay this, this, when considered in conjunction with his overall dissatisfaction with his own work, may lead one to think he reached a critical point, and that whatever he was producing came more from sheer inertia than out of, to use his own words, humanistic desire. His emptiness and disillusion are also reflected in his increasing references to the black holes, which he uses in metaphorical form to express the dark void that history was and is making of the Holocaust. The pain this causes him is clearly manifested in the last article he wrote on Auschwitz. In Italian is Buco Nero di Auschwitz, translated into the black hole of Auschwitz, which in the Turin Daily La Stampa, which came out in the newspaper, which has been published in English with the more vapid title of the dispute among German historians. Just less this was done, he, he wrote this article just less than three months before his death. In it, he takes issue with several German historians and revisionists, if not outright deniers, who attempted to trivialize the Holocaust by raising inane questions concerning the accuracy of the number of deaths, and worse still, by questioning whether the Holocaust ever occurred. The Italian title of this article suggests that nothing of importance seems to have come out of Auschwitz that has shed light on what went on inside it. No lesson has been learned from it, and if the debates and discussions going on at present are any indication, it is unlikely that anything of significance will further come to light. The black hole, then, is a confirmation of his concerns raised in the chapter Stereotypes in the, the Drown and the Safe, that with the passing of time, the mystery of the Holocaust will only increase and its impact will fade away. This disappointing reality led Levy to question the effectiveness of his writings related to the Shoah or to the, to the Holocaust. He, from the very beginning, had insisted on trying to understand this tragic event rationally. It's now fearful that his words may have had little, if any, effect. Reason, he realizes, the weapon with which he was hoping to slay that 
Auschwitz Gorgon, as he refers to in one of his poems, and reveal its true terrifying face, does not appear to endure against the lingering long-term effects of the Holocaust. He had to acknowledge, in fact, that reason can be a double-edged blade. Along with its positive role, it can also be applied to carry out evil deeds. In the essay, Unnecessary Violence, in The Drowned and the Saved, Levy admits with deep pain that contrary to what many may believe, the actions of the Nazis were not the result of madness, but rather the doing of what he calls logica insolente, of an insolent logic. Levy's surrender to this reality leads him to his desperate and dramatic cry of, we must be listened to at the end of the Drown and the Save, a cry which confirms further the pain of a man who fears that his story, and more importantly, the story of millions who have paid with the ultimate sacrifice will be forgotten. Thankfully, humanity has listened. Even though Levy may have succumbed to moments of depression and pessimism and may have been overcome by the survivor's guilt, maybe to the point of leading him to take his own life, his voice, fortunately for us, lives on, perhaps even stronger than ever. The legacy he has left humankind is indisputable. One of the marks of a great writer is when additional and meaningful nuances emerge with every reading of that writer's works. Levy certainly fits into this category with his inspiring words. And this is what may have led Al Filres, a professor of English at the University of Pennsylvania and the director of that university's Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing, to state in an interview that appeared in the Philadelphia Inquirer on January 28th of 2007, uh, which is influences heart shapes and minds that make the news, he claims that Levy's periodic table, in my view and that of most others, as one of the most important and beautifully written works of the 20th century. In the book that is the book, the, the, the periodic table is the book that influenced him on how to live his own life. And the book he would recommend had he, quote, the power to order all of the Philadelphia region to read one book, end of quote. The high quality and quantity of Levy's writings is such that there are those who sustain that had he lived, he would have probably been awarded the 2002 Nobel Prize for Literature, the year Imre Kertetz received it for his contributions to the Holocaust literature. Levy, the man and writer, continues to be the valued subject for discussions, for discussion in various forms and across different disciplines, literature, history, psychology, sociology, science, just to mention a few. In New York, on 16th Street and just off of Fifth Avenue, there is now the Centro Primo Levi, which, as part of the Center for the Jewish History, sponsors different activities related in one way or another to Primo Levi. Levi continues to be celebrated by way of conferences, studies, and an abundance of published material by and on him. I, for one, am co-editing a volume of essays for the MLA series uh, approach, Approaches to Teaching World Literature, and this is Approaches to Teaching the Writings of Primo Levi, a book which includes an article by Villanova's own professor, Letizia Moden. In addition to being universally acknowledged as one of the most eloquent voices on the Shoah, attention on Levi is also being turned more towards his overall creative genius. Many of his heretofore lesser-known works and numerous interviews are receiving their due attention and are being translated, especially here and in England. Primo Levi is internationally recognized and esteemed not only in the world of academia, but also by other mediums. He has been portrayed in films. Uh, here mentioned one, Francesco Rosi's The Truth, based on Levi's book, The Reawakening, uh, starring Gian Turturro in the role of Primo Levi. He has been embodied by actor Anthony Scher in the play Primo, a moving one-man performance on Broadway and elsewhere, based on Levy's survival in Auschwitz. 
lady has also been turned into a fictional character. And here I am thinking of Payne Rosenbaum's The Golems of Gotham, a book I highly recommend, in which Lady is one of the golems causing havoc on the streets of New York City. His writings, constantly and highly recommended by the Library of Congress as being one of the most insightful on the Holocaust, have inspired Mark Herman's movie, The Boy with the Striped Pajama, and Tim Blake Nelson's The Great Zone, title itself borrowed from one of, of the essays in Ladies, The Drowned and the Saved. His eminence as a writer has also been acknowledged on television programs, both here and abroad. On PBS, no program on the Holocaust fails to mention his name, a recognition that has not been, that has not been noted also by the American national networks. During the Winter Olympics in Torino, I was asked by one of the producers covering the Olympic Games for NBC for my participation in a piece on Primo Levi. I would like to conclude my presentation by sharing with you the short footage shown on NBC's Today program. And I will let Matt Lauer's words and those of others on Levi speak for themselves. It's been called the greatest crime of the 20th century. Imprisonment and extermination of six million Jews during World War II. For one young man, the experience would prove so searing, he spent the rest of his life trying to make sense of it. Primo Levi was just 24 when he was deported to Auschwitz. For the next 13 months, he struggled to survive. When the concentration camp was liberated in January 1945, Levi returned to Torino and immediately began to write about what he witnessed. I was almost sure to die without having written the story. So after returning home, I felt uh, kind of a duty about writing this. The result was survival in Auschwitz, also known as If This Is a Man. Initially rejected by publishers, the book came out in 1953 and is now considered a classic of modern literature. What had taken place, what had occurred, and that more, more than that, that, it was done by humans, and that we uh, have a responsibility to recognize what has happened and prevent it from happening again. Lady's book begins with his harrowing arrival at Auschwitz. In less than 10 minutes, all the fit men had been collected together in a group. What happened to the others, to the women? the children to the old man we could establish neither then nor later. The night swallowed them up, purely and simply. Of the 650 prisoners who traveled with Levy to Auschwitz, only 24 survived, most killed the night of their arrival. Levy brought to life for millions of readers a world filled with incomprehensible terrors. Today it is winter, Seven out of ten of us will die. Whoever does not die will suffer minute by minute, all day, every day. Levy went on to write more than three dozen books, including poetry and science fiction. But it's his accounts of the Holocaust for which he's best remembered. Despite his success as an author and journalist, he wrote only part-time, managing a paint factory until he was in his late 50s. Levy married shortly after the war and then raised two children in this neighborhood here in Torino. And although he lived a seemingly normal life, his friends say the Holocaust continued to cast an indelible shadow over him. The tragedy he lived uh, in the camps uh, uh, was something very personal. He kept his private life very close. By his own admission, Levy suffered survivor's guilt, repeatedly asking, why me and not the others? Lady felt the best invited. Only the only the worst survived. Levy returned to Auschwitz in 1982, nearly 40 years after his imprisonment. At the time, he said he disliked the term Holocaust, claiming it was inadequate to describe the horror he had witnessed. He did not believe that the term Holocaust was a correct term, because Holocaust implies the sacrifice, the human sacrifice of the burning. Or some deity. 
and so no reason why Jews have to be sacrificed for anybody. In April 1987, at 69, and suffering from depression, Levy committed suicide, throwing himself down the staircase of his apartment building. He left no note. Some claim his death made him yet another victim of the Holocaust. Others prefer to focus on the example he set while alive. Levy, through his experience, shows that you can be a dignified human being, even though you've experienced the worst that humanity can do for you. And we're back in a moment, but first, this is today on NBC. Thank you. This is it. Questions, I'll be happy to answer. Did he or didn't he commit suicide? Some people, there's, there's still some, there are those who claim he did not. So, um, uh, NBC, they, they, uh, Matt Lauer made the claim. We all know how he died, whether it was intentional or simply accidental. Who's to know? I don't know. Those, uh, one thing is for sure, his family never denied it. Uh, I should have, I'm not sure. So, but, um, and, and there are those, of course, saying if he survived the Auschwitz, how can he have killed himself? Maybe you can ask yourself, uh, having been in Auschwitz and having witnessed death on a daily basis, does death to him, to him, does death for him have the same impact that it has for us? I don't know. So these are some of the questions. Uh, usually, this is the question that everybody raises: Did he or didn't he? Um, but I can find you know you can justify it one way or another. Right? Justifying is the right reason. Is the right word. Uh, not much. <laughs> um, I spoke with his wife when I was doing research for this, uh, for my book. Um, and I, I, I didn't meet her, I just spoke with her on the phone. And that's about it, really. She, her, actually, what the, what a, what impressed me more was the fact that Levy said that his children did not care to know about Auschwitz. And, you know, from one end, you, you respect you know, your children's wishes. On the other hand, you also ask yourself, if my own kids don't want to know about what happened, how do I respond to that? Now, in terms of Levy, he also had a, a bedridden mother and a bedridden mother-in-law. And evidently, I mean, reading uh, Levy's biography, uh, his mother um, wasn't such of a pleasant, much of a pleasant person, it seems. Um, and talking with his friends, with his acquaintances, maybe if he did commit if he threw himself down the stairway, the stairwell, maybe his mother, who was in bed, and then probably asked him once too many times, who's at the door? Because the concierge would bring the letter, the mail, to each apartment. So maybe, I mean, she said that this friend of, of his said, said it kiddingly. But his wife has always kept a very low profile. So, um, and, well, the only thing I read about his wife was, that uh, his lady's son uh, did research uh, or studied for a while at um, uh, the University in Atlanta, um, Emory College. And it seems that they were, he, he sort of became friends with this person who wanted to write Levy's biography. And he wanted to go to Turin and an interview. So when I was doing my research on the publisher, the, the, the NID publishing house, uh, I read a letter that Levy's wife had written to the publisher telling him that this person was going to come and wanted to do research and wanted to ask questions. And she said, 
be nice to him, but don't tell him anything. So, they they had a, a very sort of a thing, very private life as uh, his his own family at least. Yeah. But I don't know much more about his wife. Well, no, he was lucky that he, uh, right, no, none of them, only he was taken to the, to the concentration camp. His, well, his, his father died before, before uh, the, 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 uh, the racial laws were declared. And he, his mother and sister were able to flee, to, to, to hide. So, and, and others claimed that one of the reasons why Levy was able to observe in such a such a way what was happening is because he knew that his mother and sister were relatively safe so he did not have the concern that they too would have been taken uh, to the concentration camp um, where they were I think but his sister also was involved in the partisan partisan activities um, was, was he an observant Jew? No. no and what was his relationship to Judaism after the Holocaust if any at all? Okay, uh, well, after the Holocaust, Levy said more than once, if there was Auschwitz, if there's Auschwitz there is no God. Um, and and um, no, what makes me laugh is if you go to Torino, uh, there's a synagogue and there's a little square in front of the synagogue, which is Piazza Primo Levi. He, uh, very, no, he, he claimed that uh, his Jewishness, um, was to the extent that at Christmas time they did not put a Christmas tree in the house. They were not supposed to eat cold cuts, but his father was crazy, especially about prosciutto. I, don't, I can see why. And and then they had to learn those those words. They had to learn for the bar mitzvah, and after that. But in, in Italy, and this is also part of the shock, because what was happening in the rest of Europe, especially in Eastern Europe, in Italy, the, the Jews were very well integrated into. Two of the prime ministers of Italy were Jewish. Uh, so the, the Jews were very well integrated in, into Italian life. So it came to them as a shock. And, and I think part of it also, in the north of Italy, uh, the majority of the, the Jewish community uh, were professionals. Um, and I don't know to what extent they, you know, not only, not, well, I shouldn't say others, I'm not sure, but Levy himself was never that religious. In fact, in one of his books, he says, you know, when there were these selections being made, so there was a time when you would think that you want to turn to someone, you know, for comfort and whatever. He said, but I, Levy, he says, I felt like a hypocrite had I done that because, you know, I, I, I didn't believe in that. So I just didn't, didn't. And he said, because of that, he may have suffered even more than those who had some faith and, 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 and sought the comfort of, 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 of a God or, or of, a superior, of a supreme being or something. But he said he never felt it. No, he was never that religious. Although he did lend his name to, um, uh, for fundraising for the, for the, uh, for the uh, synagogue. Well, he, he, after, oops, after Ash, he was very much involved in the environment. He was very much involved in all of these uh, sort of issues that we are you know, very much into. So he was, first of all, politically speaking, he sort of leaned to the left. And in fact, Levy also criticized Israel for the U.S. for the, the five-day war. He um, he had been asked more than once also if he was, was willing to go to, to Israel, uh, live in Israel. And he said no. And this is also something that we don't pay too much attention to. The Jews of Eastern Europe, after the war, had no place to go. Those who lived, like Levy considers himself Italian, yeah, an Italian Jew. I mean, he, says it, he said that more than once. 
but now this I'm, I'm letting off what, what you were asking. He was very much involved in the environment and environmental issues. Um, and I think he would have, I don't think he would have been so sympathetic to the, to the Tea Party. I don't know. I'm not sure. Uh, but is this the question you were asking? Or I'm sorry. Am I, A conversation on the instead of conversing about the doubt, doubt like yes. people doubting the oh. cost and talking about it and just focusing on the mm. doubt, which how would he advise to move past the doubt? Uh, how would he advise? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, prove the, the revisionists wrong, prove the deniers wrong. Uh, to what extent? I mean, if pictures don't tell you the story. If other evidence does not tell you the story, what can he do? Uh, he fought those who were doubting the Holocaust. But to what extent can you carry that, that fight? I'm not sure. I don't know. I mean, when you deny what's evident, what's in front of your eyes, what else can you say? What else can you do? I don't know. I'm not sure if I can answer that question. I can always, I can say this. I've, have any of you read C.P. Snow, where the issue becomes, uh, is science more important than the humanities or vice versa? You know, C.P. Snow's position is the science, sciences are more, maybe the nineties. In fact, in one of his minor works, and he says, when you talk about, uh, um, uh, who was it, Einstein, when you talk about other scientists, Galileo, uh, Leonardo, they were also writers. So Levy simply cannot separate the two. In fact, if you separate the two, that's when you create a chasm which can lead to suffering. He simply saw the two things, and in fact, he also says in terms of sciences, in, in this book that I had mentioned, the dialogue with Tullio Regge. Tullio Regge was a physicist who taught for many years at, uh, at Princeton. And he says, I, as a, uh, two things, that, as a chemist, as a scientist, A, I can observe much more carefully. I can express myself in a much more careful, precise way. And I can also see <laughs> colors, a different shade of colors. And he mentions the color blue. Says, you know, I can see, as a chemist, he says, I can notice things that perhaps make me more sensitive to certain things than uh, others. And he was, if he had a choice, his father would have been Rabelais. He loved Rabelais. Why? Well, Rabelais was a scientist, a writer. And he said what Rabelais had was he knew what human suffering was about. And he was able to deal with it in a humorous way. So to have that capacity, see, he also resented resent He was unable to bring himself forth in that sense. But he sees Rabelais as his master, and then in the interviews he says, I would have liked, he never got along that well with his, with his own father, so, but I would have liked to have Rabelais, to have Rabelais as my father. He, uh, no, he, to him, science and the humanities are two equally valuable components to culture. He doesn't, he doesn't see one above the other. Yeah, both. Anything else? No, no, it's not a too soft a term. It's an incorrect term. No, no, it wasn't. Too, in fact, I made reference. I'm in fact outside of 
the United States, they usually use, refer to, 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 to what happened as the Shoah, which means the destruction. Levy did not believe, did not uh, buy into the, the term Holocaust, because Holocaust, it was, as I've mentioned, was a sacrifice that they would do. It's really a burning sacrifice for some god. And Levy said, so no reason why the Jews were being sacrificed for anyone or anybody. So to him, the, the term Holocaust, he never, he, never, he never accepted that term. Not because it was too soft. He simply said, it was incorrect. He said, it's incorrect. So he sees the Shoah. It's a term that uh, he seemed to accept. to what extent, I mean, I mean, a lot of this stuff sort of is, uh, is post, post Primo Levi. Um, he simply cannot accept violence for anything. And even one of the reasons why he, he, he uh, criticized Jews, the Israel, for the five-day war, because he says, no, you simply don't solve problems by way of, of, of violence. Um, and he also didn't think that uh, genocide would have taken place again in Europe. Um, but again, he died before what happened in Bosnia, what happened in, in, in Yugoslavia. So uh, he simply, yeah, um, he could not accept any, 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 any but he also uh, he criticized the Cambodian situation. He did, he did. It, it, the, the Cambodia, what happened in, you know, in Vietnam and all that, he simply could not, could not accept any of those things. Yes. Why does he make the comments that the word Why? Because the, the issue then becomes you survived. Now, if you were meant, you know, if, you, if you were supposed to have been killed, all the Jews were supposed to have been killed, you survived. What did you do to survive? And Levy will also say at one point to survive Auschwitz, or to survive the, the concentration camp without making some kind of compromise. You either have to be either a saint or a martyr. And since most of us are neither, so you know, some compromise along the way had to be made. To what extent? He himself claimed that he never stole anybody else's bread. That's where he would stop. He wouldn't take anybody else's bread. But uh, 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 Professor Giuliani mentioned my interest in women, uh, uh, survivors of the Holocaust. One more here. I had the witnesses. I have, I have testimonies. One woman openly admitted uh, she sees another woman who's about to die, and she had been given soup. She was going to die anyway, so she takes her own uh, gamella, what is it, the, uh, hits the lady on the head, kills her. And she takes her, her soup. She's what, and the reason is she was going to die anyway. It's difficult for us to see how, and this is actually, my own theory is this, and this is the words that the often, and I, sh I didn't say this, but Levy often compares his misadventures to Dante's Inferno. To Dante. In fact, uh, there's a book that came out in the early Levy is known as the Dante of our time. In the Divine Comedy, the people that you see there, the souls, the, 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 they're dead, right? They're dead. So therefore, at that point, they no longer have to use their cunning abilities. In other words, and there's this, this critic uh, called uh, Singleton who says that in hell, Dante's characters are more true than they were while they were alive. Why? Because in hell, or even in purgatory, whatever they are, 
they are the true selves. They are the fulfillment of what they were on earth because they have nothing to lose anymore. The Nazis played this kind of game in some ways because the Nazis drew out of these people things that they themselves did not know they were capable of doing. Okay? Now, if you have a conscience and you come out of the concentration and you know that you have, in some ways, made some compromise in order to survive, and who can blame you? And if you do have a conscience and you start to think about what you have done, then you start to say, wait a second, what about those who give their lives? So who are the better ones to do? Me, who survived, or those who simply died? Theme that covers all these writings, but there is the experience of Auschwitz that emerges in all of his writing, one way or another. Um, in fact, when he started writing short stories, <coughs> the publisher, the editor, suggested to him that he write these short stories, and these were fairy tales, or science fiction stories. He write them under a different name. Why? Not to confuse the Holocaust writer, Primo Levi the Holocaust writer, from Primo Levi writer of other stuff. And I reaches, Levi reaches the point, he says, no, because even when I write these other stories, when I write everything else, I still feel the influence of the concentration camp. Therefore, it, it, even when he doesn't want to, this comes out. Even as I've mentioned in my my talk about the periodic table, which is the book that I recommend if you are furious in sciences or if you are in the humanities, that is one book that you want to read. I mean, not too many people can put a story attached to a chemical element. How many of you are in sciences here? When you look at the chemical elements, you <coughs> give it human characteristics. Just, you know, like zinc. Zinc, it's a rather sad, boring element. You don't. Then read the periodic table. <laughs> and so, and so what Levy does is it, it puts a story into, you know, in connection with, the, it's a metaphor, in connection with a chemical element. And we're talking about science and literature. There's no book, in my knowledge, where Levy, where anyone, a writer, combines these two components, where the chemical element and the story contained within that chemical element becomes one. But even in that book, where it's maybe the book that is least connected of the major works with the, the Holocaust, at the very end of that book, there, is, there are two chapters. I mean, there's a chapter on vanadium where he says, because of business purposes, he has to uh, communicate with a Dr. Muller, who had been one of the doctors in the concentration camp. Now, Muller is a very common name. And, says, you know, and, 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 and when he starts to correspond with this person, and it says, this person also suggests that they meet somewhere else. And he said, I don't understand, because he wants to meet me to ask for forgiveness. Well, I simply am writing him because I want to get a break on the products that I'm buying from him. But Levy also felt very uncomfortable. And he also said, it's never said, he was accused of being the forgiver. He never forgave. But there too, in that book, which has really, the whole book really has very little to do with the concentration camp, up in this chapter emerges this person who brings him back to, 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 to Auschwitz. So if there is an underlying theme throughout his works, is every once in a while sort of the, 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 the coming up of this, of, of his experience of, of, of Auschwitz, of the, of the concentration. But I wouldn't even push that that much. But it, it just pops up every time, all the time. And in fact, you know, it's less bulky. It's back, he re-examines. He re it's all experience at Auschwitz. And, 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 but whereas in the beginning, he simply tries to understand. In the last book, he's also more of a judge. He's also, you know, he accuses well, within terms. I mean, he, he, 
he realizes that even uh, when he gets letters from Germans, and many of them says, you know, well, you know, the usual, the usual responses, uh, I, I could not fight, I could not fight the Nazis, or uh, uh, we were simply following orders. The usual things that are being said, and he figures at that point that, and this is part of the, you know, how much of an impact did my writings have on, on changing anybody's view. On thank behalf of uh, all of us here on this campus, I'd like to thank you very much for giving us your company tonight. I'm afraid we could stay here for a long, long time. Yeah. I think I, I feel almost like we're just getting warmed up, and I also feel it might be unfair to Professor Petruno, but uh, yeah. uh, uh, unless there's one person with a final urgent question, uh, maybe we can say thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.